0: Friends, how are you? I'm, I'm speaking to one or two people today that are undecided about baptism. Your life is not defined by your thoughts and feelings. It's on some incongruent web of just pleasures and pains. Your life is, is the construction of the consequences of your decisions, good and bad. Is that right? Yeah. So, are you undecided? Let's talk, all right? I uh, I think you don't, re- life doesn't really start until you start regretting. Like you're just in life, and then you've made decisions or made undecisions. <clears throat> why did I do that? And that's when life kind of begins in your teens or your early 20s. Regret, that's when you really uh, start living. I, uh, every day, I, it, it's... My thorn, or something—I don't know. Uh, I regret so much. I've hurt so many people. I've—I've I've done so many things I'm ashamed of. And some—sometimes all it takes to go into a cycle is I look at myself in the mirror, and I can feel embarrassed to just be by myself. I—most of my life, I've just—I I've, I've wanted to—to to just go unnoticed. Like the worst—like the worst thing to me is being noticed. And the irony is not lost to me that I'm standing in front of a 1,000 people right now. Uh, but if you knew how genuinely hard this is for me to do this, and let alone say something worthwhile and exceed the expectations of my last name, it's, it's an astounding achievement what you're a spectator to right now. But I've just always wanted to disappear. That's all I wanted. Two weeks ago, I was laying on, the, I was laying on my, my, my living room floor to my wife just saying, I just want to disappear. That's all I want. I just want to dissolve into some nothingness, quietly. I don't want to die, it just, that's me. (laughs) Mind's quiet. And you know how I can do this, though. You know how I can do this. I have peace doing this, and my heart rate's like 50 beats per minute right now. It's because I've been through these waters. And there's nothing fragile about the love you experience in these waters. I've been through these waters. I've made the good confession to community and cosmos that Jesus is Lord no matter what I do in my life, no matter what I've done in my life, no matter what I will do in my life, I've learned this, that I testify to you today. He'll never let you go. He'll never let you go. He'll never let you go. And so if you're on the fence about baptism, even if you've been baptized as a child, as an infant, which after which life started happening, you started regretting, you must consider this crucified God. This precious one, who in Gethsemane on that night, darkness supposing it was having its hour, seized a man. And the condemnation of the praetorium, evil, extinguishing all hope, flogged a martyr. But in the ninth hour of Galgatha, hell reached for a corpse and it met God. So I've got 18 minutes and you've got one decision and eternity is at stake. Consider this crucified God. Deal? Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5, 11-21 says, Because we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. We are well known to God, and I hope we are well known to your consciences too. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us, so that you may be able to answer those who take pride in outward appearance and not what is in heart. for if we are out of our minds, it's for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, Christ died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. So then, from now on, we acknowledge no one from a human point of view, even though we have known Christ from such a human point of view. Now, we do not know him in that way any longer. So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. And look, what's new has come. And all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and who has given to us this ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting people's trespasses against them, and he has given us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making his plea through us, and we plead with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Reconciliation. Here's a way to think of reconciliation. Forgiveness it's the biblical uh, literal idea of forgiveness is letting go of, leaving is the verb, leaving something, leaving a wrong that's been done. And there's something very um, therapeutic about that in a contemporary uh, therapy type of, of way. Your therapist might tell you, you know, when a wrong has been done to you, 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 you what? You, you forgive them and you draw a boundary line. I forgive you, but, you know, my therapist says, you're out of my life. <laughs> boundaries, you know, they're good. I'm not, I'm not, boundaries are great. But my point is there's something different about reconciliation, right? Forgiveness happens. Reconciliation is similar, it involves forgiveness, it's a component of reconciliation, but reconciliation redefines the relationship and makes it into something new. Something new comes out of the forgiveness. It doesn't just in with boundaries. It's restored together and wouldn't you know that the most the best contemporary illustration we have for what uh, what reconciliation looks like is in the crude but charming uh, television series, Ted Lasso. Perhaps you've seen uh, this show, Ted Lasso, I think it's on Apple, I don't know, I have someone to count. Um, each of the three seasons of Ted Lasso have a central point of reconciliation, from Roy Kent to Jamie Tart and Keely Jones to my favorite uh, reconciliation moment between Nate and Coach Beard. Um, because it has a Les Mis reference, and if you want to know the way to Austin's heart, it's uh, Vive la France. Uh, But in the first season, the tone and tempo of a reconciliatory plot is set when Rebecca, owner of the professional soccer team, AFC Richmond, acquired the team, if you haven't seen the show, through a divorce settlement with her despised ex-husband, Rupert. Rupert is a lifelong fan of AFC Richmond. So despite her ex-husband, Rebecca hires a former American college football coach, Ted, who knows nothing about soccer. In episode nine, unable to to bear her guilt any longer, Rebecca comes clean to her malevolence and she says, Ted, I lied to you. I hired you because I wanted this team to lose. I wanted you to fail. I sabotaged you every chance I had. Ted, I'm so sorry. Ted, pauses for a moment, he's shocked, he's surprised, he's, his, but his sadness, it morphs into kind of a compassionate look. And he says through his southern Kansan drawl, I ah, forgive you. Shocked by the brevity of the usually emotionally charged Ted and many worded Ted, Rebecca stumbles, you what? Why? Ted says, divorce is hard, makes folks do crazy things. You may, we're okay. And subsequently, Ted and Rebecca, as the picture showed, formed the strongest and truest relationship and friendship in the show the next three seasons. Because there's not just forgiveness happened, there was reconciliation. They create something new. Now, think back, look back to the verse that we read, verse 15 from the passage in 2 Corinthians. This is a literal translation of my own to uh, emphasize two points Paul's making. On behalf of all he died, Paul says, but concerning such on behalfness that he died, he was also raised on their behalf. So these two things that Paul's pointing out have to do with reconciliation. These two things, Paul is saying reconciliation is personal. He died on your behalf because of the atonement. But he's also saying reconciliation is promising because of the resurrection. The reconciliation is personal. Reconciliation is promising. And those, if you're taking notes, those are your two things to take away today. So number one, let's open this up. Re- when you look at reconciliation within the atonement, you encounter something personal. What we talk about when we talk about Christ died for us is the atonement. This is, you know, if you want your two pounds of God to go in a sack, this is, this is your moment. This is it for you. There are four aspects to uh, the atonement. Propitiation, redemption, justification and reconciliation. Now, I know many of you, most of you, maybe all of you, die a little bit on the inside when you hear words like that. You just, oh, this is why I'm at Southwark, so I don't have to hear words like propitiation and all these terrible things. But the thing, imagine if I asked a young man or a young woman, uh, well-educated, a little bit of church experience, not a lot, imagine if I asked them, define those, just those words. Just define propitiation, redemption, justification, and reconciliation. They would probably go, well, you know, propitiation. It's, it's. Uh, I think it has something to do with wrath. Um, redemption. It's like a mythological second chance of life. I think. Uh, justification. Poof, I know. Um, I know evangelicals argue about it a lot. I don't really know what it means. But reconciliation. Well, that's when two people make up. Short of having a Bible degree, the first. Those three words, your definitions of those would not be so robust, would they? They're, they're, they're not a part of common language. <laughs> but reconciliation is. Reconciliation is a word we use every day in our lives. It's very personal. You see, propitiation, redemption, justification, very, very significant doctrines. You cannot remove them, cardinal. However, they're like the numbers in your online banking app. Uh, are those numbers important? Would we all agree that like, what's, what your online banking app says is very important, but they're not real. Your online, I hate to break it to you, your online banking app is metaphysical. Who can discourse metaphysics? <laughs> it's out there, it's real, you know? But it's, it's not, you don't, you don't do it. Reconciliation's like cash. You can do reconciliation. You've experienced it, you know it. Propitiation, God does propitiation, you don't reprove propitiation. God does redemption, you don't do redemption. God does justification, you don't do you don't even think about asking the Apostle Paul if you do justification. We've all know what happened to the Galatians, right? God does justification. But reconciliation, God takes the initiative in reconciliation. But it's a two way street. Reconciliation is an imitation. It's a duet. It's it's a dance. And so if if part of your protest, you know, or your, your hesitancy to baptism is, you know, I just have never liked the patriarchal idea of God standing there with his arms crossed, and I have to go to him and to apologize to him for the world that he put me in and he created. This all seems more like a him problem than a me problem. I don't understand the whole thing. Well, then you don't know how personal reconciliation is at all. Jesus spoke to actually the process of reconciliation in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Jesus says this. He says, When someone has something against you, lay your gift down at the altar of sacrifice and go and be reconciled with them. You know what that means? It's not a moral lesson. It's a theological truth that Jesus is talking towards. He's saying, God lays the body of his son down at the altar and he comes to you to be reconciled. Full of grief, full of tears, he comes to you, and he says something like this. I don't know what chapter and verse this is, but he says something like this. Laugh is hard. Sin makes people do crazy things. You and me, We're okay. Because when you look at reconciliation within the context of the atoning death of Christ, personal, it's on behalf of you. But number two, if you look at, a reconciliation within the context of resurrection, well, then you have something very promising that will change your life. Fleming Rutledge, she is a uh, an Episcopal priest uh, whose work I love. Um, but she has a theological hot take, actually. And I love theological hot takes. I just sit in my office all the time listening to Les Mis, thinking of theological hot takes. Mm. Is it true? I don't know. She says she does not attribute the full work of, of forgiveness to the cross event alone. So Fleming Rutledge says, the forgiving act of Jesus, the canceling of sin and death, and the, it, it, it began on the cross, but it was completed later. So cue Austin listening to the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. John Stott says this, the Anglican theologian in his often-utilized... Work of the cross of Christ, he asks, "Why did Christ die? Why did Christ die?" Well, okay, simple enough question, but I'm a theologian, so I gotta complicate it, right? <laughs> That's what theologians do. So Stott wanders. He goes, "Well, okay, so, so Judas, his greed betrayed Christ, and then the, the envy of the chief priests. Well, they, they handed him over." Um, Pilate's infidelity wouldn't testify in Christ's behalf, and uh, Pilate's fear of losing control had him sentenced. Well, Stott figures Christ didn't die at all. Christ was killed. Didn't necessarily die. He was murdered. You look at the evidence. You look at the events that lead to his crucifixion. He was—he was, he was murdered. But something doesn't sit right in, in Stott's mind, and I'm—and I'm like jumping four chapters here for you, so you don't have to read the book. <laughs> Christ died on behalf of others, okay? Here's why. He wasn't killed. He died on behalf of Because when you read the events that lead up to Jesus' death, and you see the greed of Judas, you sense something in yourself that you say, well, you you sense the way having money or not having money, it does consume your life. When you see the envy of the chief priests, You sense something in yourself, the disposition of your heart when looking at others' Instagrams and their lifestyles and their waistlines. When you come across the infidelity of Peter, you perhaps think of that affair or perhaps you think of that one time where you were asked if you were a Christian, you said, oh no, I'm not. You look at the grasping for control frantically of Pilate amidst the chaos of his life and and political advancement And you think of the way that you control your kids, you control your marriage, you control your image, you control your finances, you control, and you're trying to hold it all together and it's all falling apart because there's this one problem in your life. And you think of all these figures and you say, well, I'm not much different than all of these people, am I? And so then you perhaps ask yourself, why did Christ die? Why did Christ die? Well, he died because of me. My sin put him on the cross. But... Christ did not just die on your behalf. He was raised on your behalf. Consider again Peter. Peter's dad was probably not very proud of him. That's why he was fishing for his dad. You know, he was still, he was still at home when we meet him in the Gospels. He was a coward, unfaithful, easily offendable, emotionally hypersensitive Peter. Okay? Months after he betrays Christ, Acts 2, 32, 36, he looks to the very people that sentenced Jesus, and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, we are witnesses to his resurrection, and God has made him Lord in Christ. What happened in Peter? That the old Peter was gone and this new Peter came about? What happened? I'll tell you what it was. It was reconciliation. Can you imagine the intensity in the room when the resurrected Jesus walked in Locked eyes with Peter. Peter didn't grasp for a scientific explanation like you you know us post enlightenment would. He looks at Peter. And in the Galilean draw, do you know what it says? I'll forgive you. Sin makes folks go crazy. Because Jesus did not just love you so much that he died for you. Jesus loves you so much that he rose for you. And he wants you to be reconciled to him so that he can look at you one day and say, it's okay. The resurrection isn't just about a victory over death. It's about that, but it's about so much more than that. It's personal and it's promising. And this is what Jesus promises to you if you make this decision. I'll never let you go. I'll never let you go. I'll never let you go. In those rooms over there, many of you have children. I grew up in those rooms. They're learning this gospel God loves me, God made me, and Jesus is my friend. You see how profound that is. You see the theological profundity of that going out to the cosmos and back to your heart. Those kids don't have regrets. (laughs) Life hasn't started for them yet. But one day, there's anger, there's going to be divorce, there's going to be addiction, there's going to be adultery, there's going to be bad decisions. But there was something that fell down into their heart. When they were little, something really small, like a mustard seed, and it fell down and it begged to grow for years for years for the precise moment that some man, some woman is in right now to hear that Jesus is your friend. Annie Dillard, novelist, said, all my life I had been a bell, and I didn't know it until at that precise moment I was struck. friends all your lives you've been a friend of Jesus and if his gospel at all has lifted you, has struck you and has wrung you that's why we plead with you be reconciled to this God he'll never let you go he'll never let you go he'll never let you go I would bet my, my family's life on that he'll never let you go he'll never let you go He died for you, and he rose for you, and Jesus is your friend. Paul concludes chapter five, in the beginning of chapter six. He says, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. Your life's defined by decisions, so if you need to make a decision today, we're ready. We've removed all the excuses. We've got clothes, we've got towels, we've got free t-shirts, we've got changing rooms. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand, and and we're going to worship. Before that, there are the saints in this room. You know who you are. You've been here a long time, and you're here purely out of love and unity of the fellowship of of Christ, and you are here just to celebrate. And as I pray, would you pray for those who are undecided as well? I don't know the mystery of prayer, but I know it works best when a lot of people are doing it at the same time for the same reasons. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, you are sovereign in your call. There's no one here by accident. And there's no ordinary Sunday. In the presence of our Lord, the prayers of the saints, all darkness, lives have no hierarchy here, and we pray against them, and we ask the Holy Spirit to do your work. In Jesus' name, and it is empty too,